0: Hi, this is John Olson. Thank you for joining us on the National Security This Week podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe so you'll receive a new edition of the podcast every week. Please leave us a review as well and tell others about us. And please contact us with any feedback or opinions you might have by emailing nstw at kymnradio.net. We hope you find the show informative and interesting. Thanks again. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Every Wednesday at 9 a.m., we get together here on KYMN Radio to discuss national security. We'll bring in guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore challenges in national security. I want to start uh, today's show by, by just saying a thank you uh, to, uh, to Carleton College and their Alexander Hamilton Society. I was asked to serve as a panelist last Thursday night. Uh, the Alexander Hamilton Society is an organization that works with colleges and universities across the nation to attract college students into public service and, most importantly, in the national security-related positions. And it was an honor last night to participate in our discussion regarding the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. So thank you to the students at Carleton for that. Uh, that said, let's move to our topic for today's show. Uh, over the year, I've I, I promised uh, that we would dive into a study of Russia throughout the year, and we're back to that topic again today. Uh, you have absolutely turned, tuned in for the right time today. We're going to discuss Russian politics, Russia's economic challenges, and Russian security policy, and we'll also speak with our guest about her new book, There is Nothing for You Here, Finding Opportunity in the 21st Century. Our guest today is Dr. Fiona Hill. Dr. Hill is currently the Robert Bosch Senior Fellow at the Center on the U.S. and Europe at the Brookings Institution. From 2017 to 2019, she served as Deputy Assistant to the President and Senior Director for European and Russian Affairs on the U.S. National Security Council. From 2006 to 2009, she served as National Intelligence Officer for Russia and Eurasia at the National Intelligence Council. Dr. Fiona Hill holds a master's degree in Soviet studies and a doctorate in history from Harvard University, where she was a Frank Knox fellow. She also holds a master's degree in Russian and modern history from St. Andrews University in Scotland and has pursued studies at Moscow's Maurice, say that for me again, Thorez. Therese? Maurice Therese, Maurice Therese <laughs> Institute of Foreign Languages, and Doctor Hill is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. So, Doctor Fiona Hill, welcome to National Security this week. We are very excited to have you here today.
1: Thanks so much, John.
0: And so, where are you today as we're as we're talking?
1: I'm I'm at home in Maryland, you know, just um, outside of Washington D.C. So, okay. um, nice to be beaming into Minnesota.
0: Yeah, we, are, we You and I are on Zoom, and I see your your book in the background on your shelf. That's excellent uh, advertising. So I generally begin uh, our shows with a uh, short discussion about our guests' background. Uh, Your your book is all over the airwaves right now, all over the TV, uh, so I won't belabor a lot of the details. We can get into some of that when we talk about your book. Uh, But that said, you are, hands down without question, an expert on Russia and uh, widely acknowledged as such. So what drew you to the study of the Soviet Union and Russia?
1: Well, it started back in uh, the 1980s, when I was growing up in the north of England, and this was the whole period um, of the Euro-missile crisis, which you, John, certainly know something about, but maybe, you know, not everyone who's listening. Um, Basically, from about the late 1970s through to the end of the 1980s, the Soviet Union and the United States were in a standoff over the stationing of uh, mid-range nuclear weapons in Europe. Uh, the Russians or the Soviet Union at the time were stationing SS-20 missiles in East Germany and elsewhere. And the United States was stationing Pershing missiles in the United Kingdom and uh, other places beside. And in the early 1980s, um the Soviet Union and the United States proved not too good at kind of basically gauging each other's intentions. There were a lot of uh, military manoeuvres and exercises and the Soviet Union became convinced that Russia, that the, the United States, rather, was uh, basically manoeuvring around and practicing and exercising potentially for a first nuclear strike against the Soviet Union. And they were on mass alert. We know all of this now because most of the documents have been uh, declassified. But even at the time, it was pretty evident to someone like me living um, there and probably, you know, same to you, John, you know, living in the United States, that the tensions were rising and that there was a real risk of something happening. It was in all of the popular culture, all of the pop songs at the time. We were about potential nuclear war, uh, films, books, you know, kind of TV shows. And as a kid um, in high school then, it was kind of terrifying. You know, we were all wondering, you know, why we were bothering studying hard and taking our exams, if we all might be blown up and dead in a ditch. And so that was really the atmosphere of um, deciding to study Russian. It was also 1984, um, you know, against the backdrop of... Lots of people talking about George Orwell and his famous novel, 1984. Uh, The Soviet Union was just omnipresent. And, you know, this is the whole period that eventually leads to uh, the emergence of Mikhail Gorbachev and the big arms control symmetry that comes just after this. So 1984, when I decided to study Russian, was a pretty pivotal moment. It was just in the midst of all of these war scares. And I had um, uh, an elderly relative who had... Fought during World War II, been in the uh, merchant marine and take, taken part in the Arctic convoys <laughs> to supply uh, the Soviet Union at the uh, height of the war, you know, towards the end of the war in um, 1944 and onwards. Canadians and um, uh, United States merchant marines also took part in this. This was the whole effort to help prop up the Soviet Union against the Nazi onslaught um, on the on the Eastern Front, and my. Um, my relative, my uncle Charlie, said to me and my dad, you know, Fiona should go off and study Russian. She's good at languages. I've been studying French and German at school and figure out why, you know, the Soviets want to bloody well blow us up. <laughs> he couldn't <laughs> understand how we'd gone from being wartime allies to these arch enemies on the verge of a nuclear confrontation. So yeah. all of that fed in to me deciding to uh, go off to university and study Russian.
0: All right. So you and I met in Helsinki, Finland, I I think it was in 2009, maybe, early 2009, Yeah. when you were a national intelligence officer. Uh, So what do you like more, uh, serving as an intelligence officer, as a policymaker, uh, or the pure research and writing you get to do at a place like uh, Brookings? I I would imagine you probably enjoy doing all of those things for different reasons, but uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your work.
1: You know, I think that the job that I enjoyed the most was actually at the National Intelligence Council as the National Intelligence Officer because it's kind of a culmination of you know all of the work that I'd done as a as a researcher beforehand, and you know as you were in you know similar sort of field, it was very mission driven.
0: Yeah, you
1: kind of knew what you were doing every single day when you got up there, and you were working alongside people who were doing the same thing. Um, There was a lot of diversity of opinion and, you know, kind of analysis and things, but everybody was there in a shared endeavour and I really enjoyed that. That was, you know, kind of public service at its best. It wasn't all about the sort of the James Bond, you know, kind of thinking about the new James Bond movie coming out. In fact, on the country, it was anything but that. But it was on the analytical side, we were trying to give the best kind of information and the best analysis that we could for policymakers who were, you know, kind of in the sort of thick of things with, you know, not the time to sort of stand back and look at the big picture. And, you know, I got to meet people like you and, you know, work alongside an awful lot of other people who were really interested in serving their country. So that, for me, was one of the best professional experiences I've ever had.
0: And the research and writing, the work you do at Brookings, uh, what, do, what do you like yes, about I mean,
1: that? Yeah, I mean, I obviously do like that. I mean, it's uh, the opportunity to um, learn something more. I, f- I feel like in many respects, you know, my work at Brookings, I've been engaged in one continuous, you know, uh, further education process, because I get to, you know, kind of hear from, you know, people who are really steeped, just like I did at the National Intelligence Council, uh, Council, to be honest, in the particular subject they work on. And I the opportunity to be able to synthesize and put all of this together and in fact you know the book that i've just written couldn't have been written without having the benefit of, of basically being in to tap into all of these uh, you know other researchers who are bringing an awful lot of um, ideas and facts and information and you know really deep um research to the table and that was again the same thing that I had in the national intelligence council i was the person who sort of synthesized and brought together all of this analysis from all the way across Uh, the intelligence services of the US government, but also outside experts as well, because we brought everything in to provide the big picture analysis. And, you know, someone like the Brookings Institution is very similar, but obviously it's, you know, out there in the public domain rather than, you know, behind the scenes of government.
0: Yeah. And I will say being designated a national intelligence officer uh, is a huge responsibility uh, for our listeners, uh, just so you know that. Uh, so let's let's go ahead and begin our our discussion on Russia, and I, I'll come back to the policymaker roles a, a little bit later in our in our discussion day. But let's let's start off on on Russia, and uh, and maybe we should begin with the politics of Russia, and and, and frankly, the person who drives all political <laughs> discourse in, in Russia, and that's Vladimir Putin. You've studied Putin for many years. I I, I read your book. Uh, I found out that you got to sit next to him at a dinner. That had to be very fascinating. Uh, you've had numerous interactions with him uh, listening over the phone or or in conferences and whatnot. What is it that makes Putin tick? I mean, what is what does that guy want?
1: Well, Putin is, you know, quite a fascinating individual. and You <laughs> know, when I first wrote the book about Putin, we actually knew surprisingly little about him beyond, you know, the kind of standard features of the bi- biography or what he wanted us to know. Yeah. Um, you know Putin, as somebody who's risen up the dark corridors of, of government, he um, decided that he was going to get ahead in life by joining the KGB. He did go to um, college, to university. He went to law um, in Leningrad uh, State University. Leningrad obviously becomes St. Petersburg after the collapse of the Soviet Union, as it had been in the imperial times. He's kind of like a, a self-described and self-educated student of Russian history. He, you know, kind of clears himself, clearly sees himself as a man of his times and a kind of a, not just the man of the moment, but, you know, somebody who's representing a long historical tradition, which might be unavoidable if you grow up in somewhere like St. Petersburg, which is one of the most storied cities in, uh, in Russia. But the KGB is his vehicle for getting ahead in life. And I think, you know, what really makes him tick there's a whole host of issues in in the book on Putin. It's kind of more of a psychological portrait that I decided to write after coming out of the National Intelligence uh, Council with a colleague, um, an economist from Brookings, Clifford Gaddy, to try to kind of get at the different ways of figuring out Putin, because we knew remarkably little about him, even after he'd been in (laughs) the Kremlin (laughs) for years at this point, because he's concealing, you know, kind of important parts of his biography. But he definitely exists in a certain context. And one of the pivotal points for him is not just that he's in the KGB, but that he's stationed abroad in East Germany and Dresden when the Soviet Union is basically collapsing and also when East Germany is collapsing and there's this upsurge of protest movements and you know, the whole uh, reform process going on across the whole Soviets and Eastern Bloc that eventually leads to the collapse not just of East Germany, but also of the Soviet Union. And for him, that's kind of like the end of what he thought his career track was going to be. He even, you know, he says this in all of these autobiographical uh, books that are written about him or purported written by him, you know, that this seemed to him to be the end of his career, the end of all of his expectations. Because he obviously saw himself as on a career path within the KGB in a certain Cold War time frame, battling the main adversary of the United States and the West. And then suddenly it's kind of all gone. And then he gets a whole new perspective. He goes off to work in the office of the mayor of what's now St. Petersburg. And the mayor is his old law professor from Leningrad State University. And all he right. takes him on to become the sort of deputy mayor in charge of business. Now, this is all <laughs> and business development. This is all very interesting, because when he joined the KGB in the 1970s in Leningrad, there was a different kind of business the KGB was involved in. It was the business of setting up sting operations and trying to target Western business people and tourists and others who were visiting Leningrad, trying to set them up for honey traps, sting operations, blackmail, and turn them into assets. So Putin just sort of adapts all of this (laughs) in his new role as kind of deputy prime minister. And he turns out to be, uh, deputy mayor rather, he turns out to be pretty good at all of this. And then Anatoly Subchak, the mayor, his former law professor, loses uh, the mayoral race, you know, the next time around, and he's out of a job again. But because of all of these connections he's made in this new uh, position And all the old connections from the KGB, he ends up being brought to Moscow to so being put in charge of the Kremlin Property Agency, the agency that makes, you know, everybody in um, the major, you know, top positions in the Russian government beholden to it because it dulls out all the perks, the flash cars, the access to, you know, government datches or, you know, holiday homes, access to the finest clinics not just for them, but for all their families and friends. And so Putin finds himself at the center or puts himself at the center of a massive patronage network. So, you know, fast forward, all of these positions lead up to him being, you know, named to uh, uh, increasingly exalted Positions. He's actually named to be head of the KGB, which he would never have done if the Soviet Union had still been around. And he was on his previous career track because you know, he's ingratiated and, you know, kind of inserted himself in all these key networks of patronage and privilege and the old boys network around the Kremlin. And the next thing, he's a deputy prime minister. He's an acting president. and He's president. <laughs> you know, it's really kind of astounding. But, you know, what makes him tick is that you know, he has figured out how the system ticks he talks about it as a kind of a clock, a Swiss watch sometimes. And he knows how it all works. And he figures out how to make it tick for him. Everybody thinks that he is somebody that they can manipulate. Somebody who is, you know, just sort faceless bureaucrat, this old KGB guy who wasn't particularly illustrious in you know this particular position. And he's their guy because he's figured out how to make everybody see something in him that they want to see rather than what he is. And he actually makes that whole system and the networks work for him. And, you know, he does still have uh, a major sense of Russia because of this historical perspective he has. He kind of sees himself in the pantheon of the great leaders of Russia. But, you know, he is at this particular point more concerned about keeping himself and a clique around him in power. He's amended the constitution so that, um, you know, he can essentially stay in power until 2036 if he manages to sort of manipulate the election system to get himself in place. So he's very concerned about keeping his position. And actually, other people are pretty concerned about keeping him there because he knows how to grease the wheels of the state. I mean, he, he has still the Russian state, but he knows how to make it work from this top, this little kind of clock keeper's box at the, the centre to use that kind of analogy. And you know, people are now very worried about you know. Is he the guy who kind of winds this up, this little clock all the time? What happens if he disappears? <laughs> yeah. What happens to them? And what happens to the rest of the system? <clears throat> so you know, maybe that's who Vladimir Putin is. He's the guy who makes the system tick.
0: <laughs> that is fascinating. I I have seen. Uh, I, I think I saw a a snippet, an article snippet, where you talked about uh, sort of his his skills at manipulating people, uh, certainly on the world stage. Uh, one one meeting that he had where I guess with President Trump where he pretended that he was sick and I, I guess President Trump doesn't really like germs so he's trying to mess with President Trump a little bit, knock him off his game. But another meeting that he had with uh, German Chancellor Angela Merkel where he famously allowed his dog into the room and she's supposedly deathly afraid of dogs. Uh, was that just to get a rise out of these leaders, to knock them off their game? I mean he plays these psychological games as part of his leadership style on the on the world stage is that a fair fair yeah that's
1: absolutely i mean look, all politicians play games but you know (laughs) if you've been in the kgb and you've learned and honed your skills you know you often come up with different games from the average and he has said himself you know people have asked him you know what's your greatest skill he's working with people um he says which is obviously manipulating people (laughs) figuring out (laughs) what makes them tick and then you know kind of trying to affect bat, you know, suddenly pushing all of their buttons. And, you know, with Angela Merkel, he just wanted to make sure that she knew, that he knew, that she (laughs) didn't like dogs and was scared of them. And he wanted to intimidate her. Actually, I think he had the Um, exact opposite effect because Angela Merkel was pissed by that. She was pretty angry. And (laughs) so were her staff. I mean, you know, they knew what he was up to and it made them angry. Some people just don't see what he's trying to do. And, you know, he he always kind of finds some way that he can manipulate people. It doesn't have to be blackmail. It doesn't have to be a honey trap or having some illicit tip, you know, about them. It can just simply be that he knows that somebody can be intimidated or he can get at them through, you know, threatening their family or that he can actually lure them out. He also, a very important thing about Putin, you know, people obviously as a chess player, he probably does play chess. Most Russians do know how to play chess. But his rise also in youth was through youth sports as a judoka or, you know, basically um, uh, through a judo team. And he was really good at it. So talk about throwing people off their balance—that's right. the whole essence of it. <laughs> yeah. And you play through multiple tournaments. It's not necessarily a game of um, or a, a sport of strength; it's a no. sport of skill mm-hmm. and of knowing how to trip someone up and use their own strength against them. Yeah. And he does that in real life as well. So if you're susceptible to flattery, that's what he'll use. If you know you're worried about a certain thing, he'll hone in on that. And you know he's brought along with him and his circle around him people who think along the same lines. Yeah. You know, people who work with him in the KGB, people who he knows from his judo at times, I mean, the same sports club. I mean, these are all part of the people in his inner circle.
0: Yeah. Uh, Fiona, I think you, you knocked your microphone a little bit farther away. From oh, I'm here. sorry. Yeah. yeah there no, we
1: make sure Yeah. Is that back? Yeah.
0: Yep. So the Russian I'm elections. I'm gesticulating
1: as I'm talking about it you know, for people <laughs> yeah. who can't see what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm got kind of to describing Putin time I knock my own mic off, right? You know, there you go.
0: <laughs> so the Russian elections occurred uh, between September 17th and 19th, just a, a couple weeks ago. Uh, the results are out now uh, at, at Brookings and the work you do studying Russia. What, what do the results tell you about the direction of the of the nation uh, of Russia? Is there are, are there any chinks forming in, in Putin's armor? Any election results? That indicate the Russian people are kind of growing a little weary of his hold on the nation? Or is it pretty clear that Putin and his allies, frankly, are still completely secure, uh, likely to remain in control for many years to come, barring some catastrophe to Putin himself?
1: Well, look, there are all those elements there. I mean I think there's a lot of signs of weariness and there's a lot of you know, kind of political apathy – Um, A lot of people actually voted for the constitutional amendments that kept Putin in place because they kind of felt that Putin wasn't really bothering them in their lives. Um, You know, or that he had improved things over the time. You know, Russia's been a lot more stable and predictable for people living there. I mean, the big problem is the way that he's honed in on any kind of political opposition, because he does know that people are getting a little bit kind of fed up with the way that the economy is playing out. And it's not just because of western sanctions, it's because the kind of the motor of the economy has been oil and gas and oil and gas revenues that have been then subsidizing other parts of the system and trying to diversify it or natural resources i mean russia is a massive grain producer and you know there's a lot of trouble ahead you know in the world economy as we know i mean we're facing it as well supply and you know distribution chains broken down covid obviously has had a huge impact i mean the russians are still having you know hundreds of um, new cases every day massive deaths been you know somewhat similar reminiscent of what's happened here they've had a hard time getting their act together as well that's had a really, you know, serious impact on economic uh, performance. But there's not a lot of sources of innovation in the economy um, because, you know, it's stagnating. And the, you know, uh, focus of opposition, like people like Alexei Navalny, has been on the kind of kleptocratic democratic corrupt clique around Putin who have been robbing the country blind, putting stuff in offshore accounts, which just had the Pandora papers, uh, which have come out on top of the Panama papers in the United States. A lot of scrutiny now on a mistress of Putin's purportedly, who has got a fantastic villa in Monaco, for example. And Alexei Navalny, the Russian opposition leader, who's now in jail, you know, after he'd returned to Russia after this incredibly brazen attempt to kill him and putting Novichok in his underpants, uh, you know, a a military grade banned nerve agent in his underpants of all things. You know, first of all, he calls the Russians out and, you know, kind of shows that what had happened. And it's a miracle that he survived this attack, but he returns to Russia knowing full well they're going to put him in jail. And at the same time, he issues this unbelievable video that I would really encourage people to watch online where he lays out the way that these processes of work, of shell companies, of hiding assets, and this billion-dollar palace down on the Black Sea in a place called Gzendelik that uh, Putin has um, had built for himself or the people have had built for Putin with some, you know, the absurd features of it. it has got everything but his own private vineyard to a pole dancing room and a casino. <laughs> and obviously, the way Navalny tells this he's incredibly funny and charismatic you know it just kind of makes Putin look pretty stupid and and incredibly greedy and grasping but the idea that he's going to spend his retirement potentially watching pole dancing while gambling in his casino and drinking from his own wine (laughs) is you know meant to you know kind of conjure a certain image that's very different from the strongman image on the on the world stage and you know Putin is very sensitive to all of this Um, I think this kind of underscores more than anything else, not the outcome of the election, which has been, you know, pretty manipulated. The ruling party, Putin's not even, you know, part of it anymore. But obviously it was meant to be a signal of, you know, how they could still get themselves a super majority in the Duma, but with very low turnout. And, you know, the actual, their numbers of people who voted them are fairly low. But, you know, we have that in other countries. Turnout is low. You know, the ruling parties are often, you know, in there with, you know, slender margins. But, you know, the main point is that, Putin has actually had to acknowledge Alexei Navalny as somebody who was ignored for years because Navalny was starting to get traction. And, you know, they had to take Navalny and his movement out of action to, you know, basically be able to manipulate the political system, you know, ahead of the um, 22, um, uh, the, um, I mean, these um, uh, parliamentary elections. Because coming up in 2024, is the presidential election. Okay. And although Putin has you know, the right to run again, he doesn't want to be run again uh, against a real opposition figure. Yeah. And Navalny is the real deal. He's young, he's charismatic, and he's unbelievably brave and brazen as well. And he's a patriot, and he's a bit of a nationalist, and he's a populist just like Putin. He can appeal to some of the same base. And he's much younger. So it's Vladimir Putin's birthday on October 7th. He turned 69, next birthday he's going to be 70 and you notice that he stopped kind of making fun of joe biden and other leaders who were in their 70s because (laughs) hey guess what he's going to be 84 by the time it gets to 2036 so if he's telling people that all these older leaders are you know kind of in their dotage well then what are we going to be thinking about him
0: right that's fascinating So for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Dr. Fiona Hill, and we're discussing Russia, including her new book, There's Nothing for You Here, Finding Opportunity in the 21st Century. Uh, So we touched a little bit, uh, Dr. Hill, on, on Russian economic issues. Russia, as you said, has always been heavily dominated, the economy has, by oil and gas, Uh, In your study of Russia, is there a concerted effort by the Russian government today to try and diversify the economy uh, beyond fossil fuels? Uh, And and if so, what, what areas of economic development do you think might succeed for the Russian people? And I ask this because it's a global challenge right now. Obviously, we're faced with the imperative to reduce uh, rapidly, frankly, our reliance on fossil fuels for energy production, and that re- that kind of places Russia in a bit of a quandary uh, if they don't have a way to significantly diversify their economy.
1: Well, look, you've just put your finger on it. I mean, the actual the crux of the problem that faces Russia and many other countries right now, Saudi Arabia, you know, the Emirates. Um, you know, there are many countries that have built up quite a dependency on oil and gas. And, you know, we already see, you know, the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund and, you know, others in the the Gulf, you know, trying to diversify as well, you know, in other forms of energy, solar panels, you know, kind of get um, up. It's actually easier to do on a much smaller scale than it is on such a large scale in Russia because it's also the other natural resources. Now, Russia has been, I think, the largest grain producer and exporter in this past year or so there's been a lot of um, um, speculation and wishful thinking, obviously, about the impacts of climate change. Mm. You know, would this mean, there might people might remember that, you know, there was a while back in the New York Times Sunday magazine a whole article about how Russia would benefit from climate change because of, you know, the um, ability to develop agriculture and even viticulture <laughs> in, um, uh, you know, places in Siberia that, you know, otherwise, uh, you know, the most... Um, uh, you know, fertile at this particular point, or let's just say where the climate isn't so is the most conducive Actually, There's quite a lot of fertile soils around there. And the whole idea that Russia might be the future of kind of a, another, you know, kind of larger agribusiness. But it's easier said than done. Because, you know, in the, in the short to medium term, we've seen, you know, Russia having massive forest fires. Right. Because there's an awful lot of peat out there. I mean, you know this, you know, Joe, from, um, Tom from being out in um, Finland, for example, very kind of similar, you know, across the border, um, you know, forest um, with peat bogs and marshes. And, you know, when those dry out with climate change, you have a drought, they become tinderboxes. Right. And, you know, there, there's a larger area in Russia that's been on fire in this past year than all of the fires in the United States and other places combined. And those can be forever fires in a in a peat bog or, you know, kind of in a forest that's um, growing up on the edge of, uh, of peat, for example. There's also all these methane emissions as the permafrost is melting, yeah. giant potholes, sinkholes opening up all over the place. You know, climate change is a double-edged sword it may be you know beneficial but the short term um you know road to there may be extremely damaging and you know russia all the focus has been about russian gas exports to europe right um the russians need to focus in the short to medium term on that bridging energy uh and to actually lock themselves in in these long gas contracts with europe like Nord Stream 2 that's what all the wrangling has been about right so that they can hope to have revenues to diversify because diversification is going to be extremely difficult. And so this is what the whole argument is about. And, I mean, Europe needs to diversify as well. I mean, we're already, uh, you know, um, realizing that natural gas isn't necessarily the way to, you know, kind of a a carbon-free future and that we're going to have to, you know, move on very quickly with those other renewables. And that's going to be Russia's dilemma. How do they get into all of this? And, you know, they're, they're trying to kind of put it off you know like like others are but they're increasingly getting pushed by investors in the Russian economy to start to be more green you know they're kind of trying to bank on green hydrogen and you know other approaches as well but it's not that easy yeah it's going to take a lot of money and resources to move the economy yeah. and yeah. where does that come from it comes from oil and gas right. certainly <laughs> and other raw materials in the short to medium term
0: change is always hard it's always hard yeah. uh so on that economic uh, discussion United States, a lot of other countries, uh, including Russia, are are big at exporting arms. Uh, arms sales uh, acquire hard currency. Uh, so, on that topic, uh, uh, you know, of the economy, should the U.S. be concerned about Russian arms sales to Turkey or and, and India or elsewhere? I well, mean-
1: sure. Um- of course, <laughs> from the from the national security perspective, no doubt about that. And so what what are the
0: what are the concerns about those exports to those two countries? Well the concerns are,
1: you know, really obvious, particularly with Turkey being part of NATO and um you know the S four hundreds that Turkey's been purchasing are intended to bring down NATO systems. And you know, in Turkey's case, this is, uh, due to the paranoia of, uh, President Erdogan and those around him who believe that the coup that was perpetrated against him, the tempted coup, you know, was carried out using, you know, um, uh, American planes, American-made planes by, you know, basically um, uh, Turkish uh, coup plotters. And they want to have uh, a means, and they're also, you know, paranoid and thinking that the United States had something to do with it. They want to have a means of shooting down, you know, American planes. But, of course, this is a massive rupture of of, uh, the NATO alliance. And the same, you know, with India, which is an ally of the United States, And, um, you know, uh, obviously, you know, we're also thinking about how to integrate India to some degree into some of our uh, systems. And the the S-400s are specifically designed to overcome those U.S. systems. But there's another dimension of this, which I think I'm sort of circling around here too, is we're in a competition with Russia for arms sales. And, you know, kind of the Patriot missile systems and the S-400s, you know, these are competitive uh, systems. And obviously, there is a lot of money to be made for this. And this is actually Russia's point of these arms sales, because it gets back to that diversification and innovation point. What Russia wants to do is to dominate certain arms sales markets for the purposes of spurring innovation in its manufacturing sector at home, because the oil and gas sector and natural resource sectors are very low um, labor-intensive but mass manufacturing of everything from missiles to planes and anti-aircraft you know aircraft systems, that's very labor intensive. Same in the United States, right? I mean, we mm-hmm. want to bring jobs back to America and those big manufacturing jobs. Every missile is, you know, a lot of people's jobs yeah. in different places. We're in exactly the same position as they are. And, you know, look, there's this dynamic that is set up that isn't just about security competition, but it's also about, you know, kind of competition in the economic sphere. That Russia, you know, in a way, wants to make the place more insecure to sell more weapons, you know, just like, you know, there's the accusation against the United States and other countries as well, because it's part of trying to stimulate its own economy and to bring jobs back for the boys. Because, you know, remember all those giant tank factories that, you know, you and I would have, you know, looked at back in the day? Well, you know, this will want to be producing tanks or something. You know, there's only limited opportunity for transferring them into you know, washing machine factories, you know, for example, or, you know, kind of washing machine that, you know, eats up your clothes like a tank. You know, it's not quite, you know, the kind of great selling power. I mean, people are not going to, you know, to Russia for consumer goods. So, I mean, the Russians have, you know, been having this problem of how to revamp that military industrial complex that, you know, shaped the Soviet Union and early Russia and how to, you know, keep in the game there. So, there's all these dimensions that, you know, we have to factor in that, you know, shape that, back and forth that we have on this competition over arms sales.
0: Yeah. Uh, so we're on to the topic of Russian security now, and, and I want to ask you about, uh, you know, the Russians hold these uh, these annual very large-scale military exercises. Uh, a few weeks ago, they completed, uh, I think you say, ZAPAD? ZAPAD 2020? The West, the yeah. West, the West, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So this year's exercise was big, and it included Belarus. Uh, what did we learn about the Russian military and Russian defense policy from this latest uh, Zapad exercise?
1: Well, what we've um, seen in previous exercises, these are, as you said, these are annual exercises, and um, uh, Belarus is very clearly fully integrated into Russia's military planning.
0: What, whether they wanted and, uh, to be or not, right?
1: <laughs> yes, but I mean, you know, this kind of uh, point, you know, the uh, leader of uh, Belarus... President Lukashenko has been in power longer than Putin has. Yeah. He's been in power there since 1994. And he's actually slightly younger than Putin, just wants to stay in there indefinitely. He's thrown his lot in with the Russians because there's been an uprising against him. He didn't, you know, kind of um, win, you know, although he ostensibly seemed to win the last presidential election. He's busted through every term limit there is. And there's been an awful lot of pushback you know, against him, a really, you know, very vibrant opposition movement. That you know he's also been clamping down on it in a major way, and so he's looking to Russia for you know protection and support because you know he wants to stay in power there indefinitely. But if you know if listeners look at a map of you know the territory from, and I'm kind of this time looking over to you know my little globe over there, um, you have you know Russia. And then, you know, have the territory of Belarus and then you have the Baltic states. Well, in between the Baltic states and Poland is an exclave of Russian territory, Kaliningrad. Right. Somewhere when you were sitting in Finland, John, you would have been quite fixated on. Oh, yes. <laughs> Because it's across, <laughs> you know, the Baltic Sea and the kind of Gulf of Finland as well. And the Baltic states, you know, are kind of the main, you know, kind of vulnerability there in the the Baltic um, Sea security because, you know, the Russians uh, re-annexed them after uh, or during uh, World War Two, after they'd you know broken away of the collapse of the Russian Empire, uh, there's been a complete fixation on whether they'll you know try something again on the Baltic states because Kaliningrad was a piece of territory that again the Soviet Union stole, took away um, you know during uh, World War Two in the aftermath. It used to be Königsberg, part of East Prussia, part of Germany um, until uh, World War Two, yep. and the Russians then settled it with you know Russian speaking. Um, population and have turned it into essentially an armed camp and Belarus is key to the supply lines there so um, Kaliningrad is kind of like a forward um, placement of um, Russian military hardware like naval strength into the Baltic Sea, Um, it's further west than um, St. Petersburg and the Russian Baltic coastline is and Belarus and all of the security manoeuvrings there are all about protecting supply lines to Kaliningrad but also a force projection for Russia out into Europe with the expansion of NATO up to Poland and you know essentially up to that border so Belarus is a buffer mm-hmm. and you know so what we see is a kind of continuation of the old kind of cold war soviet and now russian strategic posture in europe and Belarus is essential to all of russia's defensive as well as offensive strategic thinking
0: so any any impact uh, uh, well i'll tell you what I want to make sure that we have enough time to to talk about your book, so so we'll press on. Uh, So for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Dr. Fiona Hill, and we're discussing Russia and her new book, There's Nothing for You Here, Finding Opportunity in the 21st Century. Uh, So Dr. Hill, let's go ahead and and turn to your new book. And I I actually just finished it last night, by the way. Oh, wow. So uh, what was the catalyst for you to write this book? And I, and I, I want to say right up front, it is a abs- it's an absolutely fascinating read. Uh, it's, I highly recommend it to all our listeners out there. But what was the catalyst for you to write this book?
1: The catalyst was really when I was called up to testify as a fact witness in the hearings um, and then the public testimony for the first impeachment trial of um, Donald Trump you know, back in October and November of 2019 and i um produced and read an opening statement in the public testimony that laid out some of my personal biography which is something i've never really done before particularly not in a public setting and certainly it's kind of frowned upon in academic you know kind of circles to sort of bring yourself into the action in that way but it that was in response to the closed door deposition that i'd given in october you know kind of um 2 years ago now you know this kind of time frame in which there'd been this effort to discredit myself and all of the other uh, public servants who'd kind of come forward or been subpoenaed to testify and kind of portray us as these deep state coup plotters, you know, people who weren't there in the name of public service, but were there to kind of carry out the, the, you know, kind of uh, the mission or whatever this might be of some nefarious, you know, corrupt clique who were, you know, basically perverting, you know, politics and democracy and, you know, fleecing the American public. It was all just such much of a mishmash of things that were so contrary to, you know, anything that I'd ever experienced in government, just, you know, kind of throwing everything away. And this whole idea that, you know, we were unelected an bureaucrats, so and we couldn't speak for the American people. And I, I came out of those hearings thinking, what the hell is going on here? Yeah. And, you know, I came <laughs> from really humble origins. I, I'm an immigrant to the United States. I took an oath of citizenship to become a US citizen. I even had to prove that I could speak English, even though it was <laughs> stunned to be my native language. You know, and passed the citizenship test. I'd taken multiple oaths of office, oath to be a citizen and an you know, oath to serve the country that I wanted to give back to. And I served alongside a mass of other immigrants. You know, look, people like yourself with your name, Olsen, and people listening for this in Minnesota, their families all came over at some point yeah. from somewhere else, you know, to in search of opportunity. My dad was a coal miner. He left school at 14. I left, you know, my um, hometown in the northeast of England because there was no opportunity there and was, all, was searching for, you know, things that I found in America in the United States. And I thought, well, I'm damned if, you know, people are going to paint me and all the people, these, you know, amazing people that I've worked with who come from similar backgrounds and who had an education, wanted to serve the country, served like you did in the armed forces and, you know, kind of fought and got injured and had their friends die in, you know, places like Afghanistan and Iraq for this. And so, you know, I then decided to put myself in the opening in a statement and explain who I was. Not just that I had a very distinctive accent, I did you not know, sound like I'm, you know, from Minnesota or Maryland or Boston, you know, where I first ended up here. So I wanted to explain it, just say, look, I'm an American patriot and I wanted to serve my country here. And I was also deeply concerned about the national security implications of. All of these sort of fictional narratives are swirling around about Ukraine, all the kind of denial that Russia had interfered in the election. I had gone into the government because I knew Russia was interfered in the election. You know, you and I had worked on Russia for for decades. We knew, you know, kind of what they were up to. Yep. We also wanted to try to improve the relationship between Russia and the United States, but we needed to push back against the Russian intelligence services and what they were doing. I mean, that's why I went in. But when I was in the administration, I started to really worry about us, the United States about the state of our domestic politics, the partisan infighting, the polarization that was kind of creating a national security crisis, because I knew that what the Russians had done is just exploit things that were already there, as they always have. Every Soviet propaganda exercise from the Soviet period would hone in on the United States' vulnerabilities, on racism, on segregation, on Jim Crow laws back in the Soviet period. And, you know, you and I, when you know we were studying Russian, we'd hear that all the time from Russians from the Soviet period about how flawed the United States society was. They were just homing in on anything that they could use and exploit, and I wanted to lay all that out and then, when I came away from the testimony, you know I'd engendered all these reactions, but i thought i've got to i've got to lay all this out i've got to really think about how I can do this and how I can get that out, and it's taken me a bit of time, but <laughs> how can I can explain how we've ended up in this mess, and how Russia fits in. And so, you know, in the book, I've told a story from the vantage point of the UK and Russia to explain about how the United States has got itself into a predicament that led to not one, but two impeachments yeah. of a president.
0: So your book uh, paints a very bleak picture of uh, of severe economic depression, frankly, where you grew up, uh, and how that lack of economic opportunity in different parts of the UK and and here in the United States too, uh, leads to sort of disaffection for voters with the political process uh, because they fail to deliver economic opportunities to voters. Uh, And and that can sort of open the door to populism uh, and and authoritarianism. And so there's some parallels that you draw in the book uh, to how Putin came to power and how Russia is today, to what you see sort of happening uh, in, in parts of both the UK and America. Can you talk a little bit about those those parallels?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this is really a story about 1990s Russia uh, that I kind of lay out in the book that you and I, John, know pretty well. And I was there in 1990s Russia. Right. right. <laughs> and, you, know, you saw all of this as well, seeing all of this unfold. So after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the system falls apart and Russia becomes the successor state, all of those old mass manufacturing factories, they were all centrally planned. They were all, you know, obviously run by the state. And the idea was to privatize them and modernize them, which is actually what had happened in the UK in the 1970s and 1980s. Um, People forget that a lot of industry in the United Kingdom was nationalized after World War II to rebuild it. The steel mine, the steelworks, the coal mines, shipbuilding, these were all part of British shipbuilders, you know, British coal, you know, British steel. They were run by the government. And under Margaret Thatcher, they decided to privatize those too, which meant shrinking, modernization, automation, and massive layoffs. And essentially, the same thing happens in the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union is one big, giant, blue-collar, middle-class, you know, working-class country. And when these giant factories become... Un- unprofitable. Everybody loses the job at them. The engineers, the you know, the managers, and anybody who went to Russia in that time period in the 1990s under what was called shock therapy of trying to transform you know the the, the economy overnight into a free market, you know, capitalist economy, would have seen people from nuclear engineers on the streets selling cigarettes, people selling their household goods who had been on the line in a you know a, a car factory with. Um, you know, kind of a good um, wage and, you know, all kinds of perks that had suddenly all uh, disappeared. The bottom fell out for everybody. And we, all, and, you know, Russia also had a um, civil conflict, a war in Chechnya. It's kind of a the collapse of the military. Everything was falling apart. And Vladimir Putin comes in at the end of the 90s, literally at the end of the 90s. In December 1999, he's named as acting president. And he basically says, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to make Russia great again. I'm going to put all of this back again. And he becomes the first populist leader of a major country in the 21st century. And he does actually fix a lot of things. He has to be given credit for fixing things. But he also, at the same time, led Russia down a more authoritarian path. He rolled back the pluralism of the 1990s. While the state was falling apart, the politics were pretty vibrant. I mean, there were some really terrible things happened at the same time. In October of 1993, about this particular time, this, you know, sort of um, time period in October 1993, there was a fight between President Yeltsin and the Russian parliament over a new constitution for Russia, whether it gave more powers to the parliament or more powers to the presidency. And uh, Yeltsin resolved that through tank fire. You know, basically calling out the military to shell the parliament into submission after they hold themselves up in what was then called the Russian White House. Um, this kind of building that then the government took over and turned <laughs> into their building, you know. So this was like an unbelievable constitutional crisis, a literal crisis, a kind of a coup, a coup by the president, a coup by the vice president and the speaker of the parliament. It was an absolute mess, and it was you know very violent. And that was also kind of what encouraged you know, some people to say, "God, enough of all of this. Let's just have a strong man in, a strong president who'll whip the place into shape." And that threshold of violence that was crossed in October of 1993 in this very powerful executive constitution that really enshrined the president at the top of the political system was what Vladimir Putin used to entrench himself in power. And that's what we're in right now in the United States. We're in a constitutional crisis. Yeah. We have put all of the emphasis on the president, on the executive branch. We've kind of, you know, lost the powers of Congress and congressional oversight. We're on that same path. Of course, the Russia is very different from the United States, yeah. but we're on a very similar path.
0: Yeah, I, I, throughout my career in in, uh, in naval intelligence, and, and I, like you, uh, you know, history. I was a history major at Annapolis. So you take a look at these things and you think to yourself, okay, populism often leads to uh, nationalism. And why I've always tried to tell people as a career intel officer, nationalism is never a good thing. Uh, Because nationalism requires that you blame somebody for problems, and it's usually a minority group in your own country or you're blaming uh, threats from the outside of your own country for, for your problems so that people can fixate their hatred and their scorn on some element of society, either inside your country or outside your country. And some of the things you talk about in your book are sort of highlighting how uh, Putin did some of those things uh, in his rise to power. Other strongman leaders uh, around the world today have done those same things, uh, and we've ha- we've seen some of those things happening clearly in America over the last five ten years. So that's a that's a disturbing trend, and that, like you said, is a threat to to national security. Uh, let me uh, let me ask you this because you you conclude your book, I think, on on a very good positive note. Uh, some thoughts about. You know the the good things that can happen when people come together. I noted that you you concentrated pretty heavily on the importance of education, on uh, a, a high functioning healthcare system, uh, and the idea of service service to your community. Uh, can you talk a little bit about about your v- views on that? Uh, why you were inspired to sort of conclude the book that way?
1: Well, because I mean these are the you know kind of things that I see every day, um, you know around me and. Um, I have a lot of extended family my husband 's family out in the midwest um, My husband was actually born in Minneapolis, but his family originally from you know south Dakota and you know like many others you know they were European immigrants who kind of came you know and settled on farms there 's all the family farm out in South Dakota. I talk about this in the book and you know though there was a lot of individual ambition there, the only way that people got ahead when they came out particularly to homestead in some of these you know rather remote bleak um they didn't get along all on their own no nope. they got them by building up communities and by having large families and relying on them that can do spirit that rugged individualism was really actually translated into collective community action because it had to be he wouldn't have survived and he wouldn't have been able to farm without you know kind of assistance and you know, the development of seed banks and farmers you know sharing equipment and I mean this is very familiar to anybody who lives in you know kind of in in Minnesota. Um America wasn't just built on the backs of you know the uh the you know the hunter um you know out there in the in the wilderness, you know kind of living in isolation. This is this was a you know larger endeavor and all these you know, the towns and cities that kind of you know grew up it was all based on the back of community action and education was an important part of you know, the early development of the United States, and especially after World War II. When you think about the expansion of the GI Bill to people like yourself, to be able to go out and get educated after World War II, it's part of rebuilding. Yeah. That's kind of in the state we find ourselves now, after the Great Recession of 2008 and 2009, and, you know, the kind of collapse of the economy, and now COVID, which has closed down our educational systems for two years and counting. Rebuilding through education is going to be critical. That's what happened in um Europe after World War Two. I was the product of educational um opportunities. You know, it came about after World War Two and particularly in the nineteen sixties when people expanded the education system so someone like me from a poor background could, you know, have access to an education that wasn't just, as I described in the book, for the cream of the crop. I mean, there was still a lot of elitism in the system, but you know, people working on um, you know, kind of basically Uh, moving away from that and you know we have a lot of public policy solutions for fixing you know what's happening in the United States I think there's no shortage of ideas uh, there's no mystery about an awful lot of it I mean everybody knows that education is the door to everything to a qualification I don't just mean education elite education I'm not just talking about everyone going to Harvard I'm talking about you know community colleges I'm talking about you know reskilling and apprenticeships that's education getting a qualification somebody can do something online all of those opportunities are opened up you know, but the but the big you know problem that we have is that education is often inaccessible for people and unaffordable. Because that idea of that kind of the government assistance or the local and state government assistance um after World War Two has sort of disappeared. You know, it's part of the things that have been debated on Capitol Hill and you know the, the ideas of a a bill, an infrastructure bill that would also, you know, reach out to education. This is extraordinarily popular with the majority of Americans. But, you know, the political will isn't there to pass all of these contours. I firmly believe that people should have access to education, you know, that they don't have to go into massive debt uh, to, uh, you know, basically um, avail themselves of it. Um, People should have these opportunities like I did and, you know, others did at different junctures because this is also about national security. It's not just about individual attainment. We are competing now. With countries like China, I say this in the book, and I don't want to say big Cold War and confrontation with China, just to be very clear about this, but China has, has invested massively in education. Yeah. And Russia itself had always invested very heavily in education. I mean, other countries see the importance of this. Singapore, the Scandinavian countries. Look at Finland. What an amazing education oh, system Finland has! Incredible. And they see this as an investment in the country, not just an investment in an individual, because you have a more capable workforce, you have a better educated population, it's able to be frankly tell when they're being sold a bag of lies and misinformation (laughs) and also you know kind of people can give something back to their communities they don't you know kind of they have more tools at their disposal so for me education is a pretty critical critical factor I mean I kind of feel you know it's taken me god it's taken me this long to get to be you know I'm almost 56 now (laughs) you know it's taken me this long to be able to kind of pull all of this together to be able to you know lay all of this out but you know I'm the kid who set out to get an education that, you know, my dad didn't get. I mean, at 14, he wanted to stay in school, but, you know, nobody in his family would let him. And this is a similar problem now in the US. People are getting told by their families and the communities around them, no, that education isn't for you. Maybe, like the title of the book, there's nothing for you here, but in the education system, that's wrong. There's something for everyone. In getting educated, and everyone should have access to some form of further education, qualifications, skills. Whether you want to be a plumber, you know, an HVAC engineer, a nurse, you know, you name it. That's all about your further education.
0: Yeah, I, I think you and I are in violent agreement on this point. I, I have said for quite some time that the most important strategic investment a nation can make in its future is investing in education for its young. So. And that's
1: what happened for you in the Navy, right? That's right. That's I mean, you went right. to Annapolis. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the military does a fantastic bang-up job of educating people who join the military. And in fact, that's actually one of the greatest sources of social mobility in the United States, has been the people, you know, like yourself, who've joined the military, people have been recruited on Main Street because they get trained for something.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then they can leave the military with a skill. Well, our education system should be exactly you know, um, structured in the same way. Because that's what other you know, countries are doing as well. and We will not be competitive right. in the 21st century if we don't fix the educational system.
0: So, Dr. Fiona Hill, unfortunately, we're starting to close in on our, yeah. on our time constraints here. What else would you like listeners to know about your book and, and why you wrote it? And I have to say it's a fascinating read, incredibly well written and, and filled with both a warning for our future and a hope for, that America can find our way forward once again. What else should people know about it?
1: Well, I think, you know, really the last bit of the book is basically saying to people, look, we can fix this ourselves. We, you know, we don't have to wait around for, you know, the people in Congress to get their act together here. We can actually do an awful lot in our communities. And I know that in places like Minnesota, people are already doing it. We just have to figure out how we latch it all up. You can do things in your churches, you know, kind of or any you know place of worship, you know, food banks and, you know, kind of helping the larger community, for example. You know, public service and volunteering. Anyone can go out there and volunteer, be a mentor to someone, but link it all up. You know, kind of think of the resources that you have at your disposal and how you can do something to, to make a difference.
0: Uh, And Dr. Hill, where can, uh, listeners, uh, snap up a copy of your book?
1: Well, hopefully it might be available in some bookstores, but, um, (laughs) it's all, you know, in all the usual, you know, Amazon Barnes and Noble and, you know, places, um, online and, um, and if anybody has any problem, shoot me a note. <laughs> I bought a bunch myself to give away to my relatives. And so, you know, I've got a couple in the box, you know, through that door there too, if you can't find it. Because the main thing is I just like people to read it and think for themselves yeah. about, you know, where we are and, you know, what we can all do. It wasn't just written as, you know, kind of a, A treatise of how we got here, you know, the typical, you know, think tank analysis, you know, kind of, okay, this is a great, um, you know, analysis of how we got to this point. But it's, you know, also hopefully thought for both and people going, yeah, you know, we can actually fix this. All hope is not lost.
0: Yeah. Well, like I said, this is, it's a fantastic book. So unfortunately, we have now hit our time limit. Uh, Dr. Fiona Hill, thank you so much for joining us today on National Security this week.
1: Thanks, John. It's been great being with you again.
0: How, how busy is your uh, book promotion schedule, if I may ask?
1: Oh, it's a little crazy, actually. <laughs> um, yeah, the, um, it's, uh, you know, the commercial press, you know, Collins have um, got a publicist who, you know, I keep having to check my phone to find out what I'm doing next. I need to go and have a glass of water, actually, because <laughs> I'm losing my voice. But, actually, there is an audio version of the book, 15 and a half hours of me reading it. <laughs> so, oh. If I lose my voice, people can play extracts. <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> yeah, the audio book. So, uh, again, thank you very much, Dr. Hill. Uh, so Thanks that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining me today. I look forward to, to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. And we'd love your feedback here on National Security This Week at, at KYMN Radio. So please take a few minutes to contact us and let us know how we're doing. Have a great week, everybody. Take care.